Did you know that on one night, on January 28, 2015 in North Carolina, there were almost 10,700 homeless people living in our state? And did you know that just under 2,300 or 22% of those people were children under the age of 18? On that one night, on January 28, 2015, there were over 1,100 households with children in North Carolina who were living in emergency shelters, transitional housing, or had no shelter at all. And 63% of the people living in those 1,100 households were children under the age of 18. This is what the data showed when North Carolina conducted its point-in-time count, which is a statewide unduplicated count of homeless people that's held on one night at the end of January every year. Welcome to season two of Beyond the Bench, a podcast by the North Carolina Judicial College at the UNC School of Government. I'm Sarah DePasquale, and your host for season two, which tells the story of homelessness, neglect, and the child welfare system in North Carolina. During this season, we'll talk about what family homelessness looks like, whether homelessness is child neglect, and if and when it is, how the child welfare system responds to families affected by homelessness. We'll do this by following two court cases from the past year that address child neglect because of allegations related to homelessness. Each episode represents a different stage in the child welfare process, and you'll hear from lots of different people who will share the various perspectives in a case, including shelter providers, county departments, a parent attorney, the children's guardian ad litem, and the court. Although child welfare in North Carolina addresses abuse, neglect, and dependency, we'll be focusing on child neglect only. We won't be talking about physical or sexual abuse, but our topic may not be appropriate for young children. If you're listening with children who are within a earshot, now would be a good time to get out those headphones. In today's episode, through interviews with homeless shelter providers and district court judges, we'll talk about what homelessness looks like, whether it's neglect, and whether you need to make a report to a county department. What does it mean to be homeless? There are lots of different definitions. For example, the dictionary defines homeless as a person without a home and therefore typically living on the streets. But there are lots of different federal and state laws and regulations that define homelessness for different kinds of programs. One of those is the McKinney Mental Homeless Assistance Act. That's the Homeless Student Act. It defines a homeless student as a child who lacks a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. It includes children who are doubled up or sharing the housing of other persons. They may be couch surfing or staying with friends or family. They may be living in a motel or a hotel, a trailer park, or a campground because they don't have alternative adequate accommodations. It can include children who are living in emergency shelters or in transitional housing and children who are living in cars, public spaces, abandoned buildings, substandard housing, bus stations, train stations, or other similar settings. I asked Danielle Butler with Family Promise of Wake County to define and describe homelessness. Here's what she had to say. HUD's definition is a literal, you know, on the streets or in a shelter kind of definition. Um, whereas the McKinney-Vinto, the, the school Um, definition is a bit broader, but I think it's more accurate. It's looking at kids that are living in hotels and motels. It's it's looking at kids that are doubling up. It's looking at kids living in shelters. So it's a broader definition, but um, Wake County Public Schools reports over 2,700 kids a year um, that are 
and that number is continuing to rise that are homeless by their definition. Um, and that's only school-age children. We have to collect data of where they are the night before they enter the shelter. Um, and usually it's um, couch surfing, you know, hopping from um, place to place, family to family, friend to family, um, wherever they can stay. Um, there's, there's a good number of them that are in hotels or motels, but that's somewhat expensive. Um, so that doesn't last very long. Um, there's families that live in their cars. A majority of our families are moms with children. Um, but I do see an increase of um, two-parent households. We've actually seen an increase of single dads um, because there are no other options for them in the county. Um, that, you know, we have one dad who, who has custody of both his sons. Um, the other option for him would be to go to the men's shelter and his boys to go to the youth shelter. In talking with Adrian Rombach of Rent House Services, a shelter for 10 to 17-year-olds in Wake County, she talked about the phenomenon of parents and children staying in different shelters. There has been a, a huge upswing of homeless families. Um, we've been getting sibling groups um, where the parent um, can find a place in an adult shelter but can't find a place in a family shelter. So the parent will go and stay at the family sh at the um, at the women's or the men's shelter and the youth will come and stay with us while the fam while the parent is trying to get back on their feet. So we've had an awful lot of that this summer actually, which is new and surprising. We hadn't had that before this year. So so we had six or seven sibling groups come through this summer. Wow. Yeah. Is that something where the parent and the their children are trying to see each other during the day? Yes. Even though they can't be at the same place to sleep? Yes. Most of the time, their parent will come and see them. Um, the women's shelter is only a few blocks away, um, so, and most of the time it is mothers. So they'll come over here and they'll hang out with their kids during the day, and we wholeheartedly approve of that. It's wonderful if a parent wants to be continue to be involved with their youth while they're staying with us. When I asked why this happened, Adrian said, The biggest problem is that most of the family facilities won't allow boys over the age of 12 to stay with their families. So young men, you know, 13 to 17, aren't being able to be housed with their families. And so we often see them over here. I asked Adrian about whether she saw any cycles during the year, and she said this. Christmas is really, really slow. Um, most of the time, Christmas and New Year's are low. We have really, really low population in the shelter. We don't get very many calls, but right after Christmas, we get a bunch. Um, so they made it through Christmas, they made it through New Year's, and now they're having the family problems. Um, summertime is usually fairly slow. Um, right at the end of the school year is busy, and then it kind of tapers off during the summer. Um, I Usually at the beginning of the school year is another busy time um, because the schools suddenly get involved again and they're going to see more things that are happening um, and so they start contacting us more. I asked Danielle if she saw any changes to the cause of homelessness and she said, um, So homelessness looks very different from when I started doing this work about 10 years ago. 
um, when I started doing this work 10 years, about 10 years ago, eight, 10 years ago, um, homelessness was just straight up pretty much unemployed. And now I feel like there's been some progression made, but not enough. And now it's underemployment. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, our families are getting jobs, but they're not getting enough jobs. They're having to piece together multiple jobs. They're not getting jobs that are Monday to Friday, nine to five, um, which leads to all sorts of other barriers to them in obtaining stability and safe housing. Um, we have families that, you know, there's lots of employers out there who will give families 29 hours of work. They won't give them those 30 hours of work because then you have to provide benefits. So I have families that are trying to piece together off-hour jobs um, that don't provide benefits, um, that they're trying to work different schedules and multiple schedules. And then when you have children in the mix who are either school age or not school age, you need some form of child care, whether it's before or after school care for the school age children um, or just ch straight child care for the under school age child, um, the preschool age child. There's not child care for those after hours there's very minimum second shift daycares um, and so it makes us it's that constant battle for a parent well you know I can get a job but then I'm going to lose my job because I don't have child care for my child and so I have to call out of work and so it's this kind of vicious cycle. When I asked Danielle about the role of her family shelter she said Homelessness is what brings families into the shelter, and then what our job is to do is to wrap them in the services and the referrals that they need. Um, and we look at the kids. I mean, we're focused on the kids. We're not only trying to work with the parents to make sure that we're increasing their income, employment, and how and finding stable housing for them, but we also have to look at the 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 kids and what their situations is. They spend, my case managers spend a lot of time trying to get kids enrolled in school or finding a daycare that will take mom's voucher or finding a daycare that's going to work with mom's, um, so we're look mom's schedule. And so we're looking at the family as a whole. Like we can't just look at the heads of household and do our case planning with the heads of household. We have to look at the kids because ultimately we want to keep everybody safe. Um, and we want to make sure that we end this cycle, you know, that they don't just go from here to somewhere else. You know, part of our program that we have, um, there's, there's a savings component that if they're working, we're asking them to save money with us. And now if they turned around and walked out tomorrow, that money goes with them. But, you know, some of these families, they leave here in eight weeks with almost $1,500. And that's more than they've ever had before. But if we can provide that safe, stable place for them and they're not paying for a hotel and they're not paying for meals, like they, they see that money increase so quickly. And so hopefully that when they leave here, they can, you know, um, be in a better place. Um, if they get graduate over to our transitional housing, um, they're still required to save. It's actually less money that they're required to save because at that point they're kind of independent in that, in, in their own apartment. Um, and they can stay there for nine months. And I, I have some families exit there and I'm, I'm giving them back their savings when they leave and it's three, $4,000. Um, it's amazing. And they're like, I've never had this much money at one time before. Danielle shared the thoughts of a single father who spoke to her before leaving the transitional housing program. 
when he left here, he came in my office. He's like, I feel like I'm, and he's in his 40s, and he's like, I feel like I'm going out on my own again. Like, I feel like this is the second time. Like, you all taught me the skills, specifically the budgeting and the, the financing and the income kind of stuff. He's like, you taught me all that stuff my mom didn't teach me. And so I feel like, you know, I'm going out on my own again, but this time I'm going to be successful. I asked Danielle about other barriers to obtaining housing outside of a family not having enough income, and she shared the story of a single father. He has been the sole provider for his daughter her entire life. She's now, um, I think she just turned 11, um, and he went to apply for affordable housing, um, and his application wasn't accepted um, because he didn't have any type of custody paperwork that showed that he was the legal guardian of his daughter. And he didn't have that because he had always had her. Since the day she was born, he had always had custody of her. And my argument was, but if my single mom went there and applied, they're not going to ask her for custody paperwork. So it was kind of this double standard, and we tried connecting him um, to legal aid. But, I mean, he ended up finding permanent housing on his home without without that but that was another barrier for him I'm like he's already got enough barriers um it would have been perfect for him he really was on this great path from moving from job to career he was really trying to do everything right for his daughter and you know we found out this place had an opening and we sent him there and they're like well you need to show us legal paper that shows your that you have custody and sole custody sole physical custody of this child and he couldn't produce that because she had always been in his care. He had never needed that before. I wanted to know what the judges were seeing with homelessness and child neglect. Here's Judge Hartsfield from Forsyth County. Homelessness can occur in other cases than just severe poverty. It can occur just, it can happen to me and you, the reality of it is. And that's why I always try to look at it, you know. Come on now, this could, this could be me if, I was, if, somebody, if the state didn't pay me my paycheck for two months. I don't know, I might get put out too. I mean, I'm a paycheck away from that same circumstance in some instances. So, you know, homelessness needs to be addressed in a number of issues, but we generally tend to think of it as a poverty issue. Judge Hartsfield and Judge Siler Mack from Cumberland County went on to say, We talk about homelessness in terms of poverty and the whole thing, but we got to remember that homelessness can occur without any acts that you had anything to do with. Fire. Fire can render people homeless. Um, floods, acts of nature. There are all loss kinds of, of things. That, loss of job. There are lots of things that can put people in, in a position of homelessness. Actually, foreclosure can, but I guess that's a whole other issue. But, you know, so homelessness is not necessarily directly related to poverty all the time. And sometimes homelessness could be because hours got cut short. Right. But they still, um, they have the physical home, but they don't have, can't pay the light bill couldn't pay the um, water, and they don't have adequate food. But at night, and I had a case like that, at night the mother has the trailer to go to, so at the, in the day she takes her kids, and they stay under the radar because they were all straight-A students. After school she takes them to the library. They stay at the library until 9 o'clock every day. They leave. They go over there. She has candles because that's all she has. But she can only pay the rent, the rent, not to lose the trailer, but she can't pay the light. So they do everything. There. They just physically sleep at that trailer that's not working because really they're, they're homeless, but, they have a, but they're not considered homeless because they have the they physical have structure. structure. But everything else would qualify them as homeless. They eat at school, so she gets them up early, walk them to school every day. 
So they ate breakfast at school, they ate lunch at school, and on the weekends, one of the reasons they were on the backpack buddy, so they had food for the weekend because they were one that qualified for it. You've heard Danielle and Judges Southermack and Hartsfield talk about employment and hours and housing affordability. Housing is considered affordable when rent and mortgage or utilities cost no more than 30% of your monthly income. There was a study in 2016 by the National Low Income Housing Coalition that addressed housing affordability by state. It found that North Carolina requires the 34th highest housing wage in the country. The fair market rent for a two-bedroom apartment in North Carolina is $796 a month. If somebody were working 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, the average hourly wage would need to be $15.32 an hour in order to make that two-bedroom apartment affordable. This means that somebody who's working at minimum wage of $7.25 an hour would need to work 85 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, in order to have an affordable two-bedroom apartment in North Carolina. and without adequate shelter. Is it childhood neglect? Do you need to make a report? Every state has its own definition of neglect and each state has its own mandated reporting law. North Carolina defines neglect as a child who does not receive proper care, supervision, or discipline from his or her parent, guardian, custodian, or caretaker. It's also a child who's been abandoned or not provided necessary medical or remedial care. It includes a child who lives in an environment that's injurious to his or her welfare or a child who's been placed for adoption or for care in a way that violates our laws. North Carolina has what we call a universal mandated reporting law. This means that any person, not just certain professionals like teachers or doctors, but any person who has what's called cause to suspect a child is neglected, as neglect is defined by North Carolina law, to make a report to the county department where the child lives or where the child is found. So when a child is homeless, is a report required? That depends on whether the person suspects the child is neglected, which means the child is not receiving proper care or supervision from his or her parent, guardian, custodian, or caretaker, or the child's been abandoned or lives in an environment injurious to his or her welfare. What's not included in North Carolina's definition of neglect is when a child is lacking permanent or stable housing. Staying in a shelter doesn't necessarily mean that a parent is failing to provide proper care or supervision. It also doesn't mean that the shelter itself is an injurious environment to the child's welfare. Here's what a day in the family shelter looks like according to Danielle. Um, the way that we operate is we network with about 35 churches that are called our host churches and they provide shelter to our families. They, um, so each week there's two different churches that provide shelter for the week. So the families ch switch churches every Sunday. And for that week, um, so they can be at the churches from 6 p.m. in the evening to 7 a.m. in the morning. And the churches provide their three meals. So they provide a hot dinner. They provide their shelter in the evening. They provide breakfast in the morning. And then they provide a bag lunch. So the churches are providing our meals and the shelters. And so what they do, the churches involved usually turn over their like fellowship hall or uh, daycare classrooms, preschool classrooms, Sunday school classrooms into bedrooms for each family. So that's one of the reasons that makes us somewhat unique in Wake County because we're actually truly 
a family shelter. We're not a men's shelter and we're not a women and children shelter because the churches are providing actual bedrooms for the families. We can keep mom and dads and kids together. The churches bring them back here by 7 a.m. because we're a bus stop for the local schools. So we just contact the McKinney-Vinto liaison at their base school, and then we arrange transportation for their children to get picked up here. So then from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., that's this is our day shelter, and then families can come here, and they have their own bathroom, a full bath with shower. There's a TV room, a kitchen, a living room, um, a guest office where they can meet with providers if needed. They can use computers or telephones to do job searching or get connected to other services, um, lockers to keep their belongings safe so they don't have to worry about dragging them back and forth to the church each night, um, a laundry facility. So this is their day center, so this is somewhere for them to be safe during the day um, if they're not working, and then in the evenings they're at the churches. Adrian describes a typical day in the summer at the youth shelter. Normally our kids get up between 8 and 9 or so, um, we have an overnight staff that stays awake um, and checks on them during the night to make sure that they're safe, um, make sure that they're not having any issues during the night. So um, they get up around 8 or 9 um, and they'll come downstairs and make breakfast, um, watch TV, play the Wii, do some just goof off for a while. Um, and then usually there's some form of activity that we do um, kind of in the early morning-ish, you know, 10 or 11. We'll prepare for the day. Um, if there's errands to run for the house, I mean, we take them shopping. We take them to uh, the kids right now just came back from the food bank. Um, we'll take them out to do all the normal errands that a household would need to do. If they need clothes, we'll take them shopping. If they um, have um, an appointment, sometimes we'll take them to the appointment. Sometimes their parents will come and pick them up for an appointment. It depends. Um, our afternoon staff um, have been working diligently to get a lot of passes to things. So our afternoon staff are really the ones who take them out into the community. They go out in the community and they have fun. I mean, they go and they do things that normal families would go out and do, and a lot of the time the youth haven't ever done these things before. We took them to the fair. I mean, it was really awesome. We don't go out as much during the week. Um, when it's the school year because, you know, there's homework and then there's dinner and then there's chores and then there's, you know, TV relax time and then it's bedtime. So during the summers and on the weekends we have a little more flexibility. Dinner we do as a family, um, sit down, dinner, staff will do the main cooking and the kids can help if they want to or the kids can make dinner if they want to, go to the grocery store, buy their own food. We try and do life lessons in between things, like um, the other day I had the kids helping me put furniture together um, and I told them that I'd take them to McDonald's if they did it. So we put together furniture and then we went out to McDonald's and the lady said it was $14 and the kids said, wow, that's cheap. And I said, no, it's really not. And so uh, we sat and talked about how $14 is two hours of somebody's life making minimum wage. And was the McDonald's worth 14, was, was it worth two hours of someone's life? Maybe. Was there a better use for $14? Maybe. So we talked about that while we were eating. After dinner, they usually have like um, card games or things like that. They do some chores, take showers. Um, our bedtime is nine o'clock, which I realize is really early for the teenagers, but um, bedtime means they need to be upstairs and in their rooms, not necessarily in bed or asleep. So as long as they're upstairs and being quiet, 
they can, you know, have board games up there, they can read, they can talk, they can do whatever they want. Does this constitute neglect? Neither of these descriptions talk about a parent failing to provide proper care or supervision of their children or an environment that's injurious to the child's welfare. I asked Danielle and Adrian when they made reports to a county department of a child suspected neglect. Here's what they had to say. If it's not a safety issue, and then it's not a report to a local DSS. Um, it's a report to DSS when there's a safety concern or um, there's uh, abuse or neglect. We will make the report if the youth discloses something while they're staying with us that was not disclosed previously. So if they're staying with us and they say, yeah, my mom punched me in the face, yes, we're going to call and make a report. Um, but if they're staying with us and they're like, yeah, we were just mad at each other and we were fighting and whatever, no, we don't need to make a report on that. I asked Adrian what happened after a report was made. We get a letter within a couple days of the initial report saying if they have accepted the report and at what level they've accepted the report. And then whenever they close their case, we get another letter saying that the case is now closed and what their recommendations are. When I asked district court judges if they were seeing cases in their courts that alleged that the children were neglected because of homelessness, this is what they had to say. Judge Siler Mack. Homelessness is not going to be the only reason because we have so many other avenues that they could use. It has to be something else. Judge Hartsfield. One of the ways I think that homelessness, which would not be homelessness in and of itself, would be just bad decision-making by a parent who was in that bad economic state. For example, if you were in a position where you were homeless and you went and stayed in abandoned houses where there was no running water and your kids had a chance of getting tomain and other kinds of injuries because you made that decision rather than going to a, to a homeless shelter, I don't still think that that has anything to do with your poverty. Your poverty is not the reason. It's your bad decision-making and your inability to care for your children safely based on your circumstances, whatever they are. So, again, I think that we, we all, I can't think of a situation where just because I'm living in the shelter, because I don't have a stable residence that I've been in over you know, a month or whatever, would ever get you in front of DSS, absent some other circumstances, like even though I'm staying with my boyfriend because I'm homeless and he is molesting my children. I mean, that's a whole nother story. And I can say my, my homeless cases, quote unquote, that have come, have come because the, the, the agency where they're staying or somebody else has, get, has a duty to report certain things that go on in that homeless shelter. Um, I had a young lady who was severely burned in the homeless shelter. I mean, severely, severely burned in the homeless shelter, well, you know, because her mother was not supervising her properly. And it wasn't their duty to have that kind of close supervision with her. So they immediately reported the burn. The hospital came back and reported the burn after that. So there was a check and balance system that made that happen. But clearly, it was not because of the fact that she was homeless. It was because of the fact that she had, you know, some pretty traditional neglect in terms of her care for this minor child who could not care for themselves that led to this injury. And Judge Corpening, who's in the New Hanover and Pender County Court. For example, if a family goes to one of our shelters where, where children can stay with the family, they don't file. They work with the family, and they work with them to try to achieve safe and stable housing. Um, they've got some resources to try to do that. Um, typically, it's something else. Parents are leaving kids at the shelter. They're not supervising the kids at the shelter. They're using drugs, coming back high. There's something else other than that. Now, 
for the family who's living out of a car, I've, I've, I've seen them file those where the family has nothing, won't go to a shelter, won't comply with services, and they're living in a car. Let's talk about our court cases, which start when a report of the child's suspected neglect is made to a county department. In our first case, there's a single mom with an 18-month-old. She's been living with friends and in a motel, and now she and her child are staying at the emergency family shelter. But her time to stay at that shelter is about to end. That's when the report is made. But that's not the only reason for the report. The report also says that mom has been using marijuana in front of her child, and that the child's father actually has a conviction for indecent liberties with the minor, and he's been having contact with the child. In our second case, there's a family. There's a mom and a dad, and there are three children who are two, three, and five years old, and they're living in a van in the woods. The report says more than just that they're living in a van in the woods. It says that the van is being heated by a kerosene heater, that the children aren't bathing or aren't brushing their teeth, and that the children aren't receiving adequate nutrition. The report also says that there's domestic violence between the parents and that the oldest child, the five-year-old, has intervened in their altercations. Each of those reports mean that the case is entering the child welfare system. What happens now? Tune into episode two, which will explain how the county departments respond to a report of suspected neglect and what this means for the families. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sarah DePasquale, and I'd like to thank the following people for participating in today's episode. Daniel Butler, Adrian Rombach, Judge Hartsfield, Judge Tyler Mack, and Judge Corpening. This episode was produced by Stephanie Pankey and Duncan Yetman, with production help from Ben Trybulski. You can subscribe to Beyond the Bench on iTunes or Stitcher, and while you're there, please leave us a review. We want to hear your feedback. To learn more about my work and the various educational outreach products and programs by the UNC School of Government, visit us online at sog.unc.edu. See you next time.